Hi, and welcome to the April 2017 edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today, Professor Debbie Archer and Professor Annelise Dicklutz will be discussing their most recent clinical research with us. These studies are currently found within the Early View section of the EVJ website and will be published in the journal in the near future. To start off with, I'm joined by Professor Debbie Archer, who is a Professor of Equine Surgery and Head of Equine Surgery at the University of Liverpool. Debbie is here to tell us about her paper titled Factors Associated with Survival of Horses Following a Relaparotomy. Hi Debbie, thank you for joining us today. I know you have a busy schedule, so um, we appreciate you taking your time out to join the EVJ podcast. Um, I'll start off by asking what kind of conditions necessitate a relaparotomy after the initial colic surgery and what factors have previously been suspected to increase the likelihood of this happening? Okay, so um, we know that horses that have a recurrence or persistent signs of abdominal pain, otherwise known as colic, um, would be one of the reasons, together with horses that develop um, persistent post-operative reflux, which could either be due to post true post-operative ileus or could be due to a mechanical obstruction. And very occasionally it has to be performed because dissistence of the um, abdominal body wall has occurred. So those would be the kind of indications and then the underlying reasons, well, there might be a variety. So this might be something that is a sequel to the primary lesion. So for example, um, adhesions forming at an anastomosis site, it could be progression of a primary problem. So for example, um, gut that was of questionable questionable viability might then progress to gut that um, needs to be resected. You could get a recurrence of the primary problem. So for example, things like right dorsal displacement of the large colon. It could be something completely unrelated to the initial um, lesion. And then there's a small um, group that might be related to surgical error at the initial laparotomy. So what kind of survival rates um, have been reported following relaparotomy previously? So there's not many studies that have been performed in this area and we felt it was important to add to the literature um, uh, for relaparotomy. But generally, short-term survival is around about, and that's we're talking about survival to hospital discharge, is around about 40 to 45%. And rates of interruptive death or euthanasia are generally in the range of 21 to 25%. And what were the specific aims and objectives of your study? We wanted to see what factors might be associated with survival following relaparotomy and to look at these different patterns of survival, really with the aim of um, being able to give um, horse owners um, more accurate information about the likely prognosis and also to assist us with that decision-making process, whether we feel that we can justify the additional costs and obviously the welfare issues with taking a horse to surgery for a second time. So what study design did you use and what variables um, associated with the need for relaparotomy did you look at? 
We looked at um, the medical records of all horses that had undergone um, exploratory laparotomy for treatment of colic at the hospital. And we looked at data that had been collected over a 10-year period. So that was from the 1st of January 2002 to the 31st of December 2012. Obviously, this was a, a retrospective cohort study, um, but the data were actually collected largely prospectively as part of our ongoing um, colic studies. So we have set forms that record um, all the key data. Um, so that data was all sitting um, in a hospital database anyway. And then in terms of the variables that we looked at, well, um, we we looked at anything that we thought might be um, associated with um, relaparotomy and um, and obviously for we know what factors are associated with survival in general following laparotomy. So a variety of things, you know, the background to the case, um, the horse's clinical parameters um, prior to and following the first um, laparotomy, the surgical lesions identified, procedures performed, um, reasons for performing relaparotomy and the number of days between initial surgery and relaparotomy, um, how we actually um, approached the abdomen, whether we did a midline versus paramedian incision, uh, what we found at surgery, any additional surgical um, procedures. And then we looked at post-operative complications, how long horses were hospitalised for, um, and complications such as post-operative reflux. And we were able to collect survival deta um, details as part of a, um, an ongoing um, then a survival study between 2002 and 2008. And then for data from tw 2008 to 2012, we contacted the owners directly uh, whilst analysing these data. Okay, so the paper includes a really easy to follow flow diagram, which sums up the results um, going from the number of horses undergoing laparotomy to those recovered from the uh, relaparotomy to those discharged and those alive at six and nine months. So could you talk us um, through in a little more detail of the results at each stage? Okay, so we started with um, 1,531 horses that underwent laparotomy during that time and very importantly um, stood following general anaesthesia. And of those horses, um, 96 underwent um, repeat laparotomy at less than eight, eight weeks following their initial laparotomy. So that was a rate of about 6.3%. Of those 96, 29 horses were euthanized or died during relaparotomy. I would say actually the vast majority of those were horses that were euthanized um, for either financial, purely financial reasons, which was less common because most horse owners um if finances were a worry were actually less likely to go for relaparotomy anyway um or there might be horses that were euthanized due to the chances of them surviving being considered to be um very slim to to non-existent so that left us with 67 horses that stood and recovered following um general anesthesia and of those horses, um, 24 were euthanized during hospitalization due to different complications. So that then left us with 43 horses who were discharged from the hospital. Of those, 28 were alive at six months and 25 alive at 12 months following repeat laparotomy. Okay, so there was an eight-week interval between the initial colic surgery and the relaparotomy, and this was chosen for the inclusion criteria. So could you tell us why this exact interval was, was chosen? 
Yes, it's and it's always difficult in the, you know, many studies done uh, in the colic field and other fields is trying to get some standardised definitions um, between studies because it makes it very difficult if you don't have the raw data to make direct comparisons. So we chose to go um, with an eight-week um, time period because that was um, what had been used, well, in the paper by Gorvey and some other um, papers. But in the um, Gorvey paper, they demonstrated that 77% of horses um, that underwent relaparotomy presented within two months of the first surgery so we felt that that was a, a reasonable um uh, uh, sort of cut off um for, for inclusion of these cases in this study and how did your t- uh, short-term survival rates in this study compare with other previous studies um they were they were pretty similar um so overall um short-term survival rates um uh, other studies have been around about um, 40 to 49 percent and 51 to 62 percent for those that recovered from general anaesthesia. Um, in our study, we had a slightly higher um, proportion of horses that we euthanized at relaparotomy, um, which was about 30 percent in our study compared to um, prior studies, which was around about 22 to um, 25 percent. But overall, um, in our study, um, our short term survival rates were were pretty similar um, to to previous ones. And we we grouped them into um, uh, short term survival rates for for different um, reasons for undertaking relaparotomy. So I think most key of those was a sort of a 53 percent survival rate for horses that underwent relaparotomy due to persistent colic. 50% 50% for horses that had incisional dehiscence. For horses that had persistent post-operative reflux, this was lower. This was 37%. Uh, for hemoperitoneum, it was 17% and no horses um, recovered and um, following a diagnosis of septic peritonitis at repeat laparotomy. Okay, so horses undergoing relaparotomy for persistent col- colic signs were nearly twice as likely to survive than those going back to surgery for reasons unrelated to colic pain. So why do you think this difference occurred? Yeah, it was an interesting one because we know that um, in other survival studies that um, abdominal pain um, has actually been um, a risk factor for non-survival following initial laparotomy. Um, We thought that this could be due to the fact that if horses underwent relaparotomy um, for reasons other than persistent colic, those horses might have more serious diseases associated with the poor prognosis, such as um, true post-operative ileus or septic peritonitis. And small intestinal distension was another key factor associated with a higher likelihood of survival. Could you tell us the theory behind this as well? Yeah, again, this was another one which was a little bit of a surprise at first, um, but we we looked into these cases in a a little bit more data and most frequently generalised small intestinal distension was usually associated with colic signs and with mechanical causes of intestinal obstruction other than adhesions. So things like impaction at an anastomosis or some sort of kinking at an anastomosis site. Um, compared to horses with a functional obstruction such as post-operative ileus or were adhesions were found in which um, that sort of generalised small intestinal distension wasn't always evident. So our thoughts were that these might be cases where there's generalised small intestinal distension um, where, you know, it, it 
a simple um, manual um, correction of a, a simple obstruction at an anastomosis site or the ability to surgically revise an anastomosis might be able to be undertaken. So there are also factors that were significantly associated with a reduced survival time, as you've already mentioned, um, such as a high PCV at 24 hours post-initial colic surgery, um, septic peritonitis, and those undergoing relaparotomy with adhesions. Mm. So why do you think these factors um, were so significant? Yes, the high, the high, well, it was actually high packed cell volume and heart rate um, 24 hours following the horse's initial laparotomy were both significantly associated with reduced survival on our univariable analysis. But in our model building, only packed cell volume at 24 hours following the initial laparotomy actually remained in that model. And that was a, a linear association. It was interesting because the packed cell volume and heart rate at 48 hours following initial laparotomy and those parameters immediately prior to undertaking um, relaparotomy um, didn't stay in the model, but we felt that this was because some of these data were, were missing. Um, but certainly that knowledge, horses that are sick um, immediately following um, the initial laparotomy, um, that might help guide you when having a discussion with an owner and within the clinical team as to whether to perform um, relaparotomy on a horse and you know its chances of survival. Were any of the data in this study biased at all? I think with any retrospective study, there's always um, a potential for, for bias there. And um, it was obviously a reasonable number of horses, but you know that number still may have lacked um, power to detect smaller differences between the groups of horses. Um, we tried to minimise recall bias you know, for surgery um, times and obviously getting owners to let us know when horses um, sort of died or um, were censored due to being sold. Um, but this was done um, uh, prospectively in a study um, for the time period between 2002 and 2008 and the, light, the latter time points that last four years um, were done um, by ourselves um, during collection of this data. So we hope that that bias um, might be reduced. Um, I think the key bias probably is the decision to euthanize some of these horses on the operating table, because potentially some of those horses might have had a chance to survive, um, especially if it was an economic um, decision to euthanize that horse. Um, but I think for a large number of these, these horses were considered to have a very likely poor prognosis, compromised welfare. So I think a number of these horses that were euthanized on the operating table would probably have been euthanized at some stage in the post-operative period. Um, we didn't look at individual surgeons. We've um, looked at studies within the hospital here and have shown no effect of that. And I think an interesting area, um, we didn't actually look at rates of technical area uh, error, sorry. But I think this is an interesting thing. Um, there's a nice study that was actually published as a, an abstract, as a, an ACVS um, meeting, which is uh, detailed in the references. Um, but they found technical error in 14% um, of horses undergoing early relaparotomy, and it was presumed in a further 31% in a, in, a, in, a, in this study. So things like anastomotic, uh, anastomotic leakage, hemoperitoneum, 
they are all factors that potentially could have been due to um, technical error. So I think it highlights two things. One, that clinical audit is a really important part of what we're doing. Um, and obviously, without knowing these factors, you can't put in measures to prevent or um try and um, reduce the likelihood of these occurring and obviously in future relaparotomy studies I think that would be something um, very uh, important to consider. So what would your main take-home message be for practicing vets when they're maybe advising their clients in situations like this? Yes I think it's still a little bit of an unknown. Um, Relaparotomy obviously has a financial and welfare implication. Um, And I think all we can do is just add slightly um, to um, the information that we can provide to each other as fellow clinicians and that we can also then um, discuss with horse owners. I think it's really interesting that the optimal timing of relaparotomy is um, not really known um, for, for horses and is um, a subject of a little bit of debate whether you go for early relaparotomy, for example, in management of horses with um, postoperative ileus, or whether you hold on for, for a longer period of time. So in man, relaparotomy is ideally performed when um, that patient is in an optimal condition for surgery. So that is surgery itself isn't going to be a life-threatening um, event. And prior to that, and patients' um, condition deteriorating. And obviously in um, human medicine, they've got all the benefits of lots of um, toys such as um, abdominal CT um, to evaluate and re-evaluate abdomens um, if they are concerned that there is something unusual going on. I think in terms of optimal practice, the best we can do at the moment is go with um, frequent and early monitoring, looking at abdominal ultrasound, clinical data, and thinking of our clinical threshold for for relaparotomy. Coming back to human medicine, we know that um, it should really be performed on demand rather than as a planned intervention. It has been shown to um, improve um, survival rates. So I think if you know that a horse has um, had a high packed cell volume in that 24 hours following initial laparotomy, if you've got a horse that's got septic peritonitis and adhesions obviously that's not associated um, with such a good prognosis and if you think about those septic peritonitis and adhesions cases obviously um, sort of the holy grail of abdominal surgery if we could find some way of reducing adhesions but I think clinicians need to do everything in their power to try and reduce the likelihood of that happening and things like septic peritonitis just making sure that technical factors such as leakage from anastomoses don't occur and I think um, given that a number of these horses that had septic peritonitis had quite marked SIRS when they went to surgery I think pulling back that down that threshold um, and performing early laparotomy repeat laparotomy if you consider septic peritonitis probably is really quite important before um, that patient's condition has deteriorated and conversely you know if you've got a horse that's been showing persistent colic signs where you've got multiple loops of small intestinal distension and um, you know their prognosis may be reasonable and um, particularly if you've got a mechanical obstruction um, and maybe candidates in, worth, in, w- in which it is worth performing repeat laparotomy and possibly doing that at a, an earlier stage. Okay, Debbie, well, that gives us all a lot to think about. Um, thank you for coming on and sharing your research with us today. It's much appreciated. No problem. Thank you, Ellen.
I'm now joined by Annelise Dicklitz, who is a professor in clinical and communicative skills within the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine at Ghent University in Belgium. She's also involved in cardiology research with a special interest in echocardiography. Her PhD investigated the use of tissue Doppler and speckle tracking to evaluate left ventricular function. Annelise joins us to discuss her recent paper titled Right Ventricular Function During Acute Exacerbation of Severe Equine Asthma. Hi Annelise, welcome to the EVJ podcast and thanks for joining us to discuss your research. Um, in this study, you're analysing the right ventricular function of horses that have suffered an attack of severe equine asthma. So how and why can an asthma attack have an effect on the horse's heart function? Yeah, well, the mechanism through which an asthma attack can uh, influence the heart is the development of pulmonary hypertension. So higher blood pressure in the pulmonary artery and the pulmonary circulation. And the underlying mechanism for that is increased vascular resistance in the pulmonary uh, circulation. And um, there are several underlying factors, one of which is the arterial oxygen tension, which is decreased in horses during an asthma attack, and this causes vasoconstriction. And there's also other factors like inflammatory mediators and uh, lung emphysema. So the pulmonary hypertension um, makes the uh, pulmonary pressure increase from a mean pulmonary artery pressure of about 30 millimeters of mercury in remission or in a control horse to 45 millimeters, millimeters of mercury or even higher during the attack. And the um, pulmonary hypertension is um, dependent on the severity of the disease. So if you have a horse with severe symptoms, with a really severe clinical episode, then it probably has also quite severe pulmonary hypertension. And this influences the heart because it results in increased right ventricular wall stress and increased afterload for the right ventricle. And as a consequence, in the most severe cases, this can even lead to right heart failure. And then it's called um, corpulmonale, where we have right ventricular hypertrophy and dilatation um, and heart failure symptoms. Now, uh, this is quite rare. There's only a few cases described in literature, but in human uh, medicine and also in animal models, there's also more subtle right ventricular functional and structural changes that are described um, when these um, humans or animals have pulmonary hypertension. And this is what we were interested in um, to, to look at in this study. Okay, so what were your specific aims and objectives? Well, we wanted to describe the effect of a one-week clinical episode of pulmonary obstruction in horses with severe equine asthma. And we hypothesized that these horses would develop pulmonary hypertension, and this would result in temporary right ventricular dysfunction and also in structural changes. So we expected that there would be reversible myocardial damage. So what were the inclusion criteria of the six horses participating in your study and what protocol did you use? So um, this study was uh, performed in collaboration with the University of Wrocław in Poland. Um, so the horses, the six horses that we included, had been diagnosed with severe equine asthma before. So we knew that these horses were susceptible, um, they, they, they uh, suffered from severe equine asthma. And then the study protocol uh, started with the horses in remission. So they had to be in remission for at least eight weeks, housed in a dust-free environment and fat dust-free food. Um, and then we induced um, clinical, uh, clinical episode of severe equine asthma by bringing the horses in contact with um, straw and moldy hay. 
And then after one week of clinical episode, we measured uh, again our um, right ventricular function and structure. And then uh, we put the horses back on the dust-free feet and on pallets, and we treated them with corticosteroids. We allowed them to recover for one month, and then we measured the right ventricular function again because we wanted to know whether the changes were reversible. So um, overall, we had three times where we examined the horses. So first in remission at the start of the study, and then after one week clinical episode of severe equine asthma, and then after one month of recovery. Okay, so could you tell us more about the specific parameters you measured when examining the horses? Yes, well, um, we actually looked at three things. Um, first, we looked at the clinical signs, um, so the clinical episode itself. We looked at the right heart pressures, and then third, we looked at the cardiac changes, structure and function. So first, clinically, um, the horses underwent a general physical exam at the start of the study and throughout the clinical episodes and then after recovery. Um, we gave them a clinical score, which was based on nostril flare, abdominal lift and cuff. Uh, and we also performed airway endoscopy. And this airway endoscopy also included a bronchoalveolar lavage and a foreign cell leukocyte differential count. So this was all just to assess how severe the clinical episode um, was. And then um, we measured the cardiac pressures. So this was done invasively using a high-fidelity microtip catheter that was introduced through the jugular vein. And then under ultrasound guidance, we measured pressure in the right atrium, in the right ventricle, and in the pulmonary artery, because so, we expected that there would be pulmonary hypertension and we expected increased pressures. And then third, we looked at the cardiac changes. So um, to look at functional changes, we performed echocardiography. And we also used newer techniques like tissue Doppler and speckle tracking to look at right ventricular function. But we also measured, of course, cardiac dimensions and wall thickness. Uh, and then for structural changes, we used cardiac biomarkers. Um, so we measured cardiac troponin I and cardiac troponin uh, T levels uh, using a high-sensitive cardiac troponin T assay. And we also performed myocardial biopsies to assess structural changes um, to the myocardial tissue. So how did you perform the endomyocardial biopsies? Yeah, well, the technique that we used was actually a minimally invasive technique, um, which is also used in small animals and in human medicine to diagnose cardiomyopathy. So it can be performed in a standing horse. Um, we just use a little bit of sedation to make sure that the horse is standing still uh, throughout the procedure, but it's not a painful procedure. Um, we put an introducer sheet into the um, lower third of the jugular vein. And then through this introduction sheet, we insert a biopsy forceps. It's a specific uh, forceps made for endomyocardial biopsies, um, which then under ultrasound guidance is inserted into the right atrium and into the right ventricle. And um, the, under ultrasound guidance, we can see the forceps opening. We can make it approach the myocardial tissue, and then we can grab a piece of tissue. And it results in rather small pieces of tissue of two to three millimeter thickness, um, which can be used to diagnose uh, structural changes to the myocardium. Okay, so what factors did you find were significantly associated with episodes of pulmonary, obs pulmonary obstruction? 
Well, um, well, first of all, clinically, uh, we saw in our six horses that they developed a rather mild clinical episode. Um, so based on the clinical and the endoscopy scoring, um, they had, did have significantly decreased arterial oxygen tension. Um, and then what we expected, so the pulmonary pressures were indeed higher. So we saw that the mean right atrial pressure, the systolic right ventricular pressure, and the mean and systolic pulmonary artery pressure were significantly higher in our um, six horses after the clinical episodes, after one week um, of asthma symptoms. And the um, pulmonary pressures were higher in the horses that were more severely affected, as has been described previously. So we had two horses with um, arterial oxygen tension below 60 millimeters of mercury, and they also had the highest right heart pressures. Then um, for the structural changes, uh, we did not see an increase of cardiac troponin levels. Um, so that was a bit uh, not as we expected to, but um, there was one horse where we had a markedly increased troponin levels, but this horse was actually in remission. So it was the first measurement that we did in our study. Uh, and the horse had been running around in the paddock for uh, two hours um, when it was turned out. And it, this horse really had high troponin levels. So we think that this might be associated with the exercise that it had done because afterwards, um, before the start of the clinical episode, we measured it again and it was decreased and was at, uh, to normal levels. Um, then for the biopsies, um, we did find uh, abnormal um, findings in two horses uh, where we had some focal interstitial infiltration of neutrophils. Uh, in one sample, this was in remission as well. Uh, in one, this was after the clinical episode. And then in one of the samples, we also saw distinct interstitial fibrosis. This was in a, a right atrial sample, which was uh, not found in um, the other horses and also not in normal horses that we had uh, examined before. And then finally, uh, using echocardiography, we could also see that there were alterations of right ventricular function during um, the clinical episodes. So how did you characterize these alterations in right ventricular function? And what was your hypothesis behind their changes? Well, um, as I said in the beginning, so we hypothesized that pulmonary hypertension and these high pressures in the right ventricle would affect right ventricular function. And what we found actually confirmed our hypothesis because we um, mainly saw changes when we looked at the tissue doctor and the speckle tracking findings, which can um, provide a bit more subtle um assessment of myocardial function. And using tissue doppler, we uh, found that there was an increased pre-eaction period and an increased isovolumic relaxation time in the right ventricle. And this is similar to what they find in human patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or in endurance athletes, which also have pulmonary hypertension during prolonged periods, because when they exercise, they also have pulmonary hypertension. And um, this increased pre-eaction period and increased isovolumic relaxation time indicate that the right ventricle needs more time to get to the high pressure that is needed to overcome the pulmonary pressure during systole. And then the other way around, the isovolumic relaxation time is also prolonged because it takes longer to get the pressure back down um, during relaxation. Then um, speckle tracking also gave some interesting findings because we, we saw a um, decreased 
global longitudinal strain in our horses during the clinical episode compared to uh, when they were in remission. And this decreased global longitudinal strain indicates impaired systolic function of the right ventricle. And again, in human patients or in endurance athletes, this is also typically found and it's correlated with pulmonary hypertension and it's caused by the increased afterload and increased wall stress in the right ventricle, um, making the right ventricle um, function abnormally. Did you find that all right ventricular changes were reversible? Well, um, on one hand, they were, because uh, when we looked at the horses after one month of recovery, uh, there were no longer significant differences compared to uh, the start of our study, uh, so when they were in remission. Um, but then we also compared these uh, six horses uh, with severe equine asthma to a group of control horses. And um, then we had some remarkable findings because our uh, horses with severe equine asthma had uh, even in remission, because we compared the findings in remission, they had thicker right ventricular walls. They also had a longer pre-ejection period, and they also had a lower global longitudinal strain of the right ventricle uh, compared to the control horses. So this indicates that there is somehow um, right ventricular dysfunction present in these horses, although it's very subtle and it's subclinical. Um, this may have several explanations. For one, it could be that the horses... Even in remission, they were not totally in remission, so uh, that there is still some persistent airway inflammation or that the owners, they thought that they were horse, their horses were in remission, but that you know they didn't really um, look at the horses well enough and they might have had some um, clinical signs even though they were so-called in remission. Um, on the other hand, it might also indicate that there is just some subclinical permanent myocardial remodeling present in horses with severe equine asthma, even when they are in remission. And um, this may also be um, seen from the troponin values that were so high in this one horse when it was running out in the paddock, um, because running probably induced pulmonary hypertension, which was higher, of course, than the normal values that it had during rest. And um, exercise always induces pulmonary hypertension in horses, but it may be um, extremely elevated in a horse with severe equine asthma, even when it's in remission. Um, and then we also saw in the biopsies that this one horse had interstitial fibrosis in the myocardium. And this may also indicate that there is some myocardial remodeling going on, um, although it's subclinical, um, but that there is some damage that is not reversible. So how would these findings um, affect how you manage patients in clinical practice? Well, I think um, the, it's important to realize that in asthmatic horses, there is pulmonary hypertension and that this affects the right ventricle. Now, in horses with mild clinical signs, this pulmonary hypertension is probably not so um, prominence. So, and probably the right ventricular alterations are also minimal. Um, however, in horses with severe clinical signs, it's of course very important that these horses are not ridden because we don't know um, what the effect of these right ventricular alterations is on, um, for example, also cardiac rhythm. Because when we have right ventricular myocardial remodeling, this might also lead to um, development of dysrhythmias. 
And in that light, it might be very interesting to look at um, horses with mild signs of uh, severe equine asthma, which may be ridden by their owners, and to look at how this affects the uh, myocardial function and especially the presence of dysrhythmias. So in clinical practice, I think, um, of course, it's just important to manage the um, the respiratory uh, signs and then the heart will follow. But in horses that have um, long periods of uh, clinical signs due to severe equine asthma, it's possible that there is some uh, permanent myocardial damage that is not reversible. Okay, Annelies, thank you for sharing your findings with us today. Okay, it was my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us and the next edition will be out in June.